Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi and I have just become a TikTok influencer. By that I mean that I recently found an old broken clock in a skip in Penge, or Ponge, as the locals like to call it. I took it home, cleaned it up, bought a new motor for it off of the internet, and through my influence, the clock, which had previously not TikToked, now does TikTok. Ergo, I am a TikTok influencer. Of course, I can't be a real TikTok influencer, can I? Because that's kids stuff, isn't it? Kids, eh? With their TikToks and their Snapchats and their non-existent attention spans. The problem with this generation today is that they're all so self-obsessed and entitled. Boys acting like idiot yobbos, girls dressing like cheap tarts. It wasn't like that in my day. No, I haven't just become a massive gammon. I'm just, in a humorous and light-hearted way, illustrating the theme of this month's episode, which is older generations criticising, fearing and being judgmental of young people, their fashions and their behaviour. But this has gone on forever. Each generation comes along, does its own thing, and the old folk think the world is going to hell in a handcart. You can call them youth movements or tribes or subcultures, they come and they go. Teddy boys, mods, rockers, hippies, punks, new romantics, ravers, goths, emos. The only things that connect these seemingly very different groups are the relatively young age of the tribe members and the disapproval of their elders. So to begin the show today, I'll be talking to Shan Bradley, who back in the mid-70s was the bassist and founder member of the punk band The Nipple Erectors. I can hear Bill Grundy rotating in his grave as I speak. Sham was right there at the start of the punk movement, before it was even called punk, and was signed to the Soho Records label. I met up with her in a not very punk location to hear all about it. After that, in time-honoured fashion, it is, of course, the film chat bit of the show, when I'll be meeting not one, not two, but five members of the South Bank Talkies Film Discussion Group in a technically challenging online conversation to talk about the 1962 courtroom drama The Boys. With a superb ensemble cast, and incidental music provided by The Shadows, The Boys follows the trial of four young working-class men accused of murder in a Soho petrol station. But can they hope to receive a fair trial when everybody they encounter is so prejudiced against young men like this who they routinely denounce as teddy boys? 
Find out what the group thought of the film a little bit later. So let's get on with it then. Though it hurts to go away, it's impossible to stay. The biggest selling single in 1976 in the UK was this. I love you. I love you. You know. Save Your Kisses for Me by the Brotherhood of Man. <laughs> Other huge hits of that year included I've Got a Brand New Combine Harvester by the Wurzels and several entries into the top 100 by Demis Roussos. Google him if you want to. I'm not saying this is the reason for the explosion of punk that year, but the mid-1970s was a very weird time for music in this country. The sheen had worn off many of the iconic stars who'd survived the 60s, and the glam rock scene had almost burnt itself out. The charts seemed to be dominated by novelty records and American AOR. Google that too if you like. So the stage was set for something angry and grassroots to come along. And it did, partly in the form of today's guest, Sean Bradley. Sean was the founder member of the Nipple Erectors, which was later abbreviated to the Nips, and was at the very heart of the punk scene in London. If you take a look at the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com, you'll find links to some of Shan's music and a fantastic picture of her and the singer of the Nips, somebody you may have heard of, taking a sheep for a walk outside Buckingham Palace. The Nips dissolved after about five years and Shan later went on to form The Men They Couldn't Hang in 1984, which blended folk and punk. Shan is now an artist and has been locked down at home in North London for most of the last year, so I was honoured that she ventured out into central London to meet me. Even though we're now, touchwood through the worst of the pandemic, we decided to meet in an outdoor location, which is why you may hear a few background noises, and we parked ourselves at either end of a bench in the very pleasant surroundings of St Giles's Churchyard. I should warn you that there are one or two rude words in the upcoming conversation, so if you're of a nervous disposition, fast forward 11 minutes or so. And here's the first couple of those rude words. <clears throat> Can we just lose the blimmin' brotherhood of... Flipping man now, please. Even though you're only three. Thank you. I'm Shan and I play bass. I started a group called the Nipple Erectors, uh, shortened to the Nips, so we couldn't get any gigs with uh, someone called Shane McGowan. I've heard of him. Have you? Yeah. Yes. Him and Noddy Holder, they're Christmas guys, aren't they? They're the ones who make all their money at Christmas. Yeah, I go, I can't, there's no escape. Every, <laughs> you know, every supermarket, whatever, at Christmas. So you're one of the original, you're part of the original punk scene in the mid-70s, you were right at the heart of it. How did you get into it? Uh, 1975, I went to art school at 16, I was at Hearts College of Art and Design in St Albans, and the Sex Pistols gate crashed, our Halloween party and played. And by coincidence, I had butchered my hair and had an accident with henna and peroxide <laughs> and was ripping up my clothes and wearing dustbin liners and outsize ice skating boots. And so I fitted right in, it was synchronicity. So they played that once, I ended up booking them back three times in 76. And this is preset vicious, isn't it, you're talking about? Oh yeah, Long yeah, it's original, yeah. original gigs. They couldn't even play really. I mean, we thought they were just taking the piss. Yeah, I had a guitar 
a Spanish guitar and I was going to see gigs since about 72 when I, you know, I was about 14 because I lived in Hertfordshire and the train up was 32 pence return. Um, <laughs> and you could get to like Finsbury Park next to the Rainbow. I, don't, I ended up going to loads of gigs. I just loved going to gigs. And thought, I can do that. Yeah, I was a massive Bowie fan. The first gig I went to was David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars in 1972 at Harlow Playhouse. Wow. So that was it for me. I just thought I wanted to do it then. And I was a big Slade fan as well. Oh, right, okay. I saw them at the Rainbow. It was Susie Quattro. Thin Lizzy and then Slade. I mean, what a bill. Brilliant. Well, was that got 50p, was it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 75, probably. So then you decided to put a band together. Did you form the band Nipple Erectors? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Did you meet Shane through the band or how you Well, I had a couple of people that I met at the 100 Club. There was Claudio and Ray. Ray Pissed, it was his punk name. <laughs> And we tried to do a band, but it was so we made such a racket, we called it the Laundrettes, because that's what it sounded like, basically. And then, I don't know what happened, didn't really work out, and then I met Shane, and I said, oh, would you like to be in a band? And he said, oh, that's my dream, I always wanted to do that, so I said, come round for an audition. So he came up to my bedsit in the... Stavardale Road, N5. So I opened my bedsit door and, uh, and the landlord was like Le- Leonard Rossiter there. It was like an Irish Leonard Rossiter. <laughs> he let him in. And, uh, and as soon as I opened the door to my room, he just burst in and rolled on the carpet. It's like doing a really good Iggy Pop impersonation, you know. And I just said, yep, you've got the job. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then you became engaged. Oh, yes, yeah, a bit later, yeah. <laughs> Three months later. Well, we were going to get married in gorilla suits in Islington, town hall right I thought it was a good idea at the time and then our parents got in touch they said oh you're a bit young and wild (laughs) (laughs) they had a point yeah there's a Pogue song called Shan Bradley named after you but you just told me before that there's a couple more songs that he wrote about you yes Pair of Brown Eyes Rainy Night in Soho I think London Girl yeah there's a few wow do you get royalties from those? You do? Unfortunately not. Well, that's a shame. Unfortunately, well, that's what he told me anyway. And Sham Bradley, the song, it's not in the least bit punk. It's kind of quite a traditional Irish... Well, waltz, isn't it? It's a waltz. One, two, three, one, two... Yeah, well, actually, my granny was Swedish, and, and she taught me to waltz because it used to be big there. And when I went to Tipperary in Ireland, we went to a dance, and then it was show bands and waltzing. Yeah, one, two, three, yeah. one, two, yes, three. Yes, yeah. so I knew how to do it, so I think I taught him how to waltz. Right. So that's probably why. He sees me as a dancer. Right. <laughs> how did the name Nipple Erectus come about? Uh, I saw Jabriath, it was like the American David Bowie, on TV once, and he came out with this see-through suit, and a, it was like an orange on his head, but it was see-through, and it opened up like segments of an orange. Right. And for some reason, I had a dream that night about a band wearing these kind of rubber suits with nipples on, I thought, yeah, and they'd be called the Nipple Erectors, and I just... <laughs> Because that thing about the Sex Pistols, Sex Cells, you know, it's just yeah, a joke. Yeah, the name of the shop. 
yes, yes. So it, it kind of fitted in with that idea at the time. And was it also a, you know, trying to be shocking and outrageous and that kind of thing? Or? Well, it was, yes and no. It was just like people, people were so easily shocked. It kind of was like it was taking the mickey, really. But it's also the idea that they were so they were so excited by the band, you know, the music made the nipples stand on the end, and so that was the right. <laughs> but then you changed the name of the band because oh um, god, yeah, we couldn't get. Well, we had a gig booked at Hackney Town Hall by this guy Alan Anger, and the Hackney Council didn't like our name on the poster, so the whole gig was cancelled, and we we couldn't get any gigs. We did a few, but then, you know, so it was like oh, you better shorten it to the nips. I didn't really like that, but that was a compromise. It does seem like a lot of the punk antics were just messing around. Yeah. It, it's difficult to understand now why it seems so shocking. My dad, who was relatively young at the time, he was sort of late 20s and 30s, he found it all quite funny, that Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious and Filthy McNasty. And then Sid Snot was the Kenny Everett. But it could easily, could easily have been a real Sid Snot, couldn't they, in a band? It was that sort of name. It just seems... It seems odd that people were that shocked. Not really, when you look at the, what people looked like back in the day. <laughs> we're in a film called Punk Kebab, and I take a sheep outside Buckingham Palace. And if you look at the people in the background, you see what they look like, and they're like, they can't, don't know what's happening when they see us. Yeah. And I've got, like, my hair all butchered in an old suit jacket. But there has been, at that point, that's ten years on from the 60s and all the madness of the 60s and... There was a slightly different emphasis, but there was lots of nakedness in the 60s and drugs and everything. Had people not got a bit used to that? I don't think that was in, in everyday world. No. I think that's glamorised. I think it may be in some circles, but everyday world wasn't like that. It was straight, very straight. Punk was basically a working class well, that's, de- up, that's, de- that's debatable as well. Is it? Originals were pretty much people from art schools because they played in art schools. Yeah. So lots of very, very creative people who went on to also do all sorts of stuff. The great thing about it was it was a complete melting pot of everything. Bands like The Undertones and Sham 69, and they were they're from working-class backgrounds, weren't they? Or, yeah, they were a bit later on. Yeah, the original are, yeah. lot... I mean, that's not to say working-class people don't go to art school, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm saying? Lots of the hijinks of the punks back in the 70s seemed a bit cartoonish in a way you know a bit silly yeah having fun yeah yeah but i think one thing that does seem a bit shocking still is people wearing swastika armbands and the sort of the, the nazi imagery what was going on there what was that about well our generation grew up watching war films you know there were only two or three channels on tv and they used to show these black and white war films all the time so it was really giving the finger, really, just taking the piss out of them. It was just saying, fuck you to everything. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very spontaneous, but we didn't really have a plan. So well, why were you saying fuck you to everything? Well, for me, I was just very angry about my own upbringing and had my own issues. I think that was similar for lots of people involved in the Yes, okay. yeah, definitely. It was a rage. I mean, that's why I started butchering my hair and... Because we didn't have, like, therapists in those days. It was just like, deal with it. Right. <laughs> um, I'm going to form a band called Nipple Erectors then. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was angry just about everybody. I hated school, didn't I? And I went to art school, I didn't know what else to do. I 
now that you're um, a mature, sensible, grown-up lady, you've seen these other waves of youth movement come through since punk. And how, what's your attitude to them been? Do you kind of go, in my day, or do you just kind of... No, no. I don't patronise them, and I think every generation should have their own protest and scene. And, and they do. People say they don't, but they actually do, as I know from my own daughters. Have you enjoyed these kind of different waves of stuff that come through, like hip-hop and that kind of thing? Or My youngest daughter's a eucalyptus LV, is a rapper and writes her own material. And she's gone through various phases and some of it was a bit like, oh my God, you know, call the police. <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly what used to happen in my bedsit. They'd call the police when we were rehearsing. So I just, she's a bit of a chip off the old block, really. But in her own way. Yeah. And do you like that? Uh, well, it's, it's been challenging, put it that way. It's, uh... There's that song, wasn't there, recently called WAP? Do you know that one? WAP, Wet Ass Pussy. Oh, brilliant. And, um, <laughs> and my kids were like, What do you think of that, Dad? I was like, Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. I don't That's care. A correct response. Yeah, just like, Whatever. Who cares? Yeah. I'm quite alienated from a lot of that music, which is good. It's, it's how it's meant to be. I do think the world would be a better place if people said whatever a bit more often. It would save a lot of arguments about things that don't really matter. Thank you to punk legend Shan Bradley for sharing that venture me in St Giles Churchyard. As I mentioned earlier, there's some pictures of her and the Nips in the late 70s heyday, along with a playlist of some of their songs on the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. The Boys, directed by Sidney J. Fury, is both a classic courtroom procedural drama and the commentary on age prejudice. At the very start of the film, the four eponymous boys, young men really, are led into the dock of a crown court in silence. Their anxious families clutch themselves and peer down into the court, trying to see if their lads are okay. 18-year-old Stan, played by Dudley Sutton, two 17-year-olds, Barney and Ginger, played by Jess Conrad and Tony Garnett, respectively, and 16-year-old Billy, played by Ronald Lacey, are in deep trouble. James Allen Johnson, Brian Harold Lee, William Henry Hearn, and Stanley Herbert Coulter. You each of you stand charged on the following indictment. That on the 15th day of January 1962 in the County of London, you murdered Arthur Walter Baxter in the course of furtherance of theft. Stanley Herbert Coulter, how say you? Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. Brian Harold Lee, how say you? Are you guilty or not guilty? I'm, uh, I'm not guilty. William Henry Hearn, how say you? Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. James Allen Thompson, how say you? Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Members of the jury in waiting, please answer to your names 
and step into the jury box as you are called. The stakes are high. This is before the abolition of the death penalty and only a few years after the infamous Derek Bentley case, which showed us that in a joint enterprise such as a bungled robbery, the person who delivers the fatal blow might not be the only one to end his days at the end of a rope. In the first act of the film, Victor Webb, the prosecuting counsel, played by Richard Todd, calls several witnesses who each tell their own scrap of the tale, which is shown in flashback. One witness has seen Stan peering through the window of the petrol station, at which the murder would later take place, at a cash box. Another has seen them assault an old lady at a bus stop. A barmaid claims to have overheard them planning the robbery that ended in murder, and every witness called by Webb excoriates them all as delinquents, yobbos and teddy boys, and to the audience, at this stage of the film, that is exactly what they appear to be. During a break in the proceedings, Mr Montgomery, the boys' defence barrister, played brilliantly by Robert Morley, gives them a stern talking to, imploring them to help him to help them. Will you listen to me? Webster is conducting this case with a view to blackening your characters to such an extent that you'll be found guilty, knife or no knife. Every time I ask you if what the witnesses say is true, you tell me it is. It's hopeless. I can't go on shouting circumstantial evidence forever. You've got to give me something to go on. You've got to tell me about that evening. Look, we've told you. You haven't told me a thing. Look at the statements you made to the police. You confirm everything they say. You've threatened an old man. You've admitted it. You took a pound off a girl. She You've said so. She gave it to me. You deliberately slashed the rubbish bin. You've owned up to it. Don't you understand? This is hooliganism. And you spread your net right across London. It's now the defence counsel's turn to question the witnesses, and gradually we sense the tide beginning to turn. As he deftly reveals each witness's prejudice and inconsistencies, we begin to think that, although they're certainly no angels, perhaps the boys aren't as bad as we've been led to believe. We also see scenes of the boys' home lives. All of them live in a cramped tenement building, but are from decent families with a strong sense of community. Each of the flashbacks we saw before are now rerun from the point of view of the boys, rather than that of the witnesses. And although many of the events do play out almost exactly as they were first presented to us, subtle differences in the accounts and different interpretations of the incidents expose the bigotry of the witnesses and lead us to believe that perhaps a guilty verdict would be a miscarriage of justice. Even the resolve of the prosecuting barrister seems to waver as he begins to question their guilt. Hello. Uh, Victor here. Look, Tom, I'm going through the depositions again. Word by word. I may call you later, is that all right? Certainly. Tom, what do you think? Oh, we may get a verdict on the knife, it's an even money chance. No, I don't mean that, I mean the boys. Do you think they did it? I believe so, don't you? I don't know. With a couple of surprising plot twists in the last 20 minutes, it's Rashomon-inspired storytelling technique, a message that may well have been challenging to some viewers in 1962, and some great performances from a ton of well-known faces, including Roy Kinnear, Wilfred Bramble, Carol White and David Lodge. The Boys is a film that really ought to be a well-known classic of the social problem genre, but for some reason it's not very well known, although it does have occasional screenings on our favourite TV channel, Talking Pictures TV. The main problem with The Boys is that in order for the central technique of re-running slightly different versions of the flashbacks to be successful, the prosecution's more damning version of events has to be laid out first, we need to be lulled into the idea that the boys are indeed a bunch of dangerous delinquents in order to make Robert Morley's more dynamic and interesting questioning achieve its desired impact. This means that the first half hour or so is, to be honest, a bit dull, which isn't helped by the director's focus on the time-consuming nitty-gritty of court procedure. But once that's out of the way, and as we get to see more rounder versions of the story and its characters, it becomes a compelling watch 
and has a gripping conclusion. South Bank Talkies is a group of film enthusiasts who meet up on a regular basis to discuss a film chosen by the group. The organiser of the group, Alan, calls it a book club for films. In the days when people met in person, they would meet in the bar of the BFI, hence the name South Bank Talkies. But currently, like the rest of the world, they're continuing their activities online. I joined Alan and four other group members, Simon, Joe, Michael and Serena, on a Zencaster group call, which is what we cool podcasters use instead of Zoom. We did have some technical difficulties, which is why the audio quality isn't perfect, but they had some interesting things to say, so I hope you'll forgive the dodgy sound. So we're here to talk about the 1962 film The Boys. The Soho connection with The Boys is that the central incident in the film takes place in Soho, although the action is set mostly in a courtroom. Had anybody seen the film before? I hadn't. No. Everybody's shaking their heads. That's good. So we've got five people on my screen here. Could we quickly run around the group again and give you initial initial thoughts on the film and a sense of how much you enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it? Alan first. I enjoyed it, but I found that the good bits made me frustrated with the weaker bits of the film. Because when it's good, it is very enjoyable and a sort of interesting side of the 60s. Uh, Simon? Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed it more than I thought I was going to. You know, an obscure film I'd never heard of. But actually, it has quite a well-known cast, in fact, and and a good director. I didn't really know him, but um, he'd done The Young Ones and apparently went on to The Ipcrest File. And I think, um, you know, sort of expected um, quality. And I would have said it was some good, well-acted, some good cinematography. Joe? I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I mean, I looked it up that it's a kitchen sink drama and that sort of social realism I really like. It kind of reminded me in some ways of the Mike Lee, um, Vera Drake film, although in some ways that seems a bit of a caricature in comparison because um, they're sort of play acting at being working class, whereas these people really appeared in terms of their sort of staccato language and intonation and stuff. It was a real kind of insight into a, a different you know, world or a different lifestyle. Michael? Yes, I, I enjoyed it too. I mean, I think the film took itself quite seriously. And, uh, you know, I have some issues, I guess, about the, maybe about the script and the concept of it. But um, I, I really loved the actors. It was a wonderful sort of ensemble of actors. And um, the four boys referenced by the title actually went on to have quite distinguished careers in one way or another. I think three of them as, as actors and uh, one of them as a producer. And I also, the other thing I really loved about the film was some of the locations shot. And there was a great scene, for example, in a dance hall. What a world away that is from a from a nightclub in Soho these days. It's fantastic. Serena? Yes, I did like it a lot as well. I found it very intense, very full of uh, very different content. And I think he managed to touch on important ethical aspect in a very delicate and uh, at the same time deep way. So I found it very, um, very interesting. Good. Michael, you talked about some of the cast, the group of four, the core group of four. Could you talk a little bit about what they went on to do? It was Tony Garrett, wasn't he, who went on to be... um... A producer. Yeah, that's right. Chapter played Ginger. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I, Dudley Sutton, I, I suppose, was the lead boy, if you like. And um, interestingly, uh, he was, I think he was about 29 at the time the film was shot. And uh, But he makes himself look an awful lot younger. And I think he was older uh, when the film was shot than Roy Kinnear was. Uh, Roy Kinnear played one of the witnesses, a bus, a very nervous bus conductor who looked old be- beyond his years. Roy Kinnear in the film looks, you could say, about 45 or 50. Dudley Sutton looks about 
18 or something. But Dudley Sutton, he went to, I mean, most people know him from his part in the TV series Lovejoy. It was a series I think it was on probably in the 80s and 90s. One of the other actors, one of the other boys was uh, Ronald Lacey, who's, a, you know, a, he's got an unforgettable face and sort of demeanor. But he was very young at the time, but he went on to be a sort of character actor and is notable for playing um, a particularly hideous Nazi in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in the Indiana Jones film. And then the fourth actor, I'm afraid I can't remember his name. The fourth one is Jess Conrad, it, who plays Barney, who looks like Tom Cruise. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Just taller. Just a couple of the other actors who are in it, who are interesting. Um, obviously, uh, Robert Morley as one of the barristers. And the other one is uh, Richard Todd who is probably most notable for playing Guy Gibson in the Dambusters film. Great ensemble of, of actors. And there's quite a quality that, if you're sort of steeped in British TV and film, there's lots of small parts where you suddenly go, oh, it's him! It's that person! There's like, you know, Albert Steptoe's in it, and suddenly all these people from different productions turn up. And that, that was sort of quite fun, that they got these people who maybe weren't even famous at the time. Any other performances anybody wants to uh, pick up on? I do really like Robert Morley in it. As a courtroom drama, drama side of this does remind me a lot of the Rumpole TV show and you almost think there's there's a little bit of Rumpole in Robert Morley there's sort of a recognisable jovial he's, he's he's got a sort of higher principled calling which is why he's doing this he he wants people to not be prejudiced to try and see things more honestly um, I thought he had an earnestness but at the same time I thought he there were quite a lot of cheap shots like the women in the pub he kind of slanders them by saying, weren't you just angry because you were left, you know, left in the lurch? And then he, and then the, the judge kind of brings him up on that and he says, well, it was worth a try. <laughs> I feel like. Yeah, the defense always, through the first part of the movie, come through like uh, someone uh, ready to everything to defend uh, some murders. He tried to leverage uh, on every weakness uh, and he comes through like a very mean uh, and a ruthless person, but instead, uh, and the second party show like a more compassionate nature, especially when he talks with the guys privately, and he actually relate uh, for having been victim of prejudice uh, on its own when he was young. He was ridiculed for being fat at school, and um, correct. All yeah, that kind of eventually stuff. you understand why he's trying to defend these young people. Are you going to say something, Michael? Uh, well, I was just going to say. I mean, the key sort of dynamic in all the relationships between the you know, the defendants or the witnesses or the barristers or uh, anyone else, it seems to be about sort of social class and they, they judge each other on that basis. You know, whether it's the stockbroker who is accused of having an extramarital affair when it actually the person he was with was his wife's sister, you know, the stockbroker was being stereotyped by the barrister in just the same way that the stockbroker has stereotyped the defendants as being, quote, yobbos or teddy boys and so on. And there's this whole kind of disconnect between different social classes is, um, you know, major feature of the film. I think this is the start of the breakdown of the sort of era of deference, isn't it? The class system is, isn't breaking down, otherwise it would have broken down by now, and it clearly hasn't. But, you know, working class voices becoming something other than just stereotypical, or oh, Gavner, all that kind of stuff. Is that just on the cusp of that beginning to change slightly? And reflecting back the middle class and upper class people's prejudices at them, is quite new, I think. And so to see that going on must have been quite interesting. I mean, it, it surprises me that it's it's not more... I don't know what would account for it not being a more major film, really. Does anybody have any thoughts about why it's obscure? 
because it feels like it should be a classic, you know. It's quite a static film in some ways. It um, it took itself quite seriously, and you, you felt from the very beginning that it was out to make a serious social statement. It does, in the end, do that, but it, it takes a long time to get going, and there's an awful lot in the film about the sort of the machinery of the courtroom and British justice and how that works. And the structure of the film, you know, it's it, the, the first half is really the case for the prosecution, and that's all about sort of stereotyping of the defendants. And it's only actually in the second half of the film you get the really interesting stuff, which is the case for the defence, when you really build sympathy for the boys. Yeah. Maybe if the film had hit people harder <laughs> with some more engaging material earlier on, it would be a much more successful film. I think, to be fair, it was, um, I think it was maybe the first half hour or so was a case sort of prosecution i think where you say it started getting better was about half an hour in not like an hour in i wonder if it's like on top of the class thing there is this emergence of teenagers i've discovered myself doing this if i'm on the night bus that if loud young people go on the night bus i start sitting there now i'm of an age where i'm going oh they're just making lots of noise and i I have had to check myself several times and go well you were that age you were getting night buses, you were getting on trains, and and you were with your mates, so you were making a lot of noise. Yeah. And that sort of switch, you to sort, of, to sort of become the other side of the equation and sort of thinking, well, I'm disapproving of this, rather than teenagers being teenagers, especially that sort of almost emerging as a word in the 50s and early 60s. Teenagers are about to become utterly hip. They're about yeah. to become celebrated and, and, and a source of income and a source of culture. And a sort of film maybe that sort of raises different issues about how are we looking at teenagers, how are we judging at teenagers, probably, and this is going to be embarrassingly using lingo, probably felt a bit square. You know, <laughs> yeah, daddy Yeah, exactly. It's, you should be more hip. Um, <laughs> and have a film where you had four boys that they were the centre of it and it was their adventures. Uh, it's interesting in that case that they cast... Jess Conrad is one of the boys because he was a kind of pre-Beatles heartthrob. So it's like they were going for that market in a way by getting him in. You were saying in an email, Alan, they're often referred to as teddy boys in mm. the film. The first time I watched it, I was thinking, well, they're not teddy boys. Dudley Sutton's no. got a vague teddy boyish haircut. But you said it would. It, by that time it'd come to mean just general term of abu- abusive term for young people. I think you do find that it becomes this word that is just for young people. So young hoodlums get, get ascribed being teddy boys. It becomes a sort of sneer that they're a problem. So you find the teddy boy menace and the teddy boy problem sort of appears as these are young violent men who aren't showing due deference. They're looking odd. They've got this strange fashion. And, and society is, is going to hell in a handcart if we tolerate this. And, and there is a quality with all of them that they, they have this, we have to accept, it's a suspension of disbelief that they're teenagers because yeah. they don't really look like teenagers. I mean, in modern terms, they look almost quite respectably dressed men yeah. in their late 20s. Yeah. Um, so they're not quite the same problem children that I think the film wants you to see. Like in Greece, when they yes. all look about 45. I felt there was a really strong idea of a kind of line of continuum. On one side, there's like the stable, kind of law-abiding citizens. And then there's these boys, they're chaotic layabouts that people want to sort of, sort of gesture at or a kind of moral panic almost about working-class boys, I think, at the time. And there's a sociological study by Howard Becker in the 1970s, and it's on labelling, and it talks about, you know, middle-class boys being a bit violent or misbehaving. That's just high spirits. But when it's working-class boys, that's a, that's a threat and uh, something to be aware of. And 
I felt that kind of tone in the film, really. Are you in that field in some way? Is that part of your professional expertise? Well, I teach sociology, yeah, and philosophy. Yeah. When I was a kid, you'd see original Teddy Boys with the grey hair and the bald spot and the attempt at a quiff, you know, and they were sort of lovable old dads or granddads by then. But, but that the idea that a, a youth movement springs up is feared by um, wider society and then assimilates. Is that something that you've looked at at all? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think one thing that really struck me about the film is you always imagine there's been this great march of progress, but actually, you know, quite recently, um, the government put high-pitched noises in places where they didn't want the young teenagers to congregate. It was taken to, you know, the, the human rights courts because you can't do that. <laughs> you know, even in the film also, they talk quite a lot about the... Um, the criminal type, don't they? Which is uh, Lombroso, that, you know, you see the thick set, wide forehead or something, and you're being able to identify who the criminal is there, but therefore. In the film, that they have that kind of legacy, don't they? Those remnants of those stereotypical ideas are still with them. And you think that we've moved so, you know, far forward, but we still have racial profiling. Yeah. Not yeah, that's quite an interesting scene where the, the garage owner is asked to look at the boys and say, well, is that a criminal type? And he says, well, yes, but it's just my opinion. Why have they chosen Soho as a location? I think probably because it would have been recognised as where people went out in London at the time. I quite like that it, it shows it as being naff. A little bit naff. And as a teenage boy going into London, I can relate to that. Uh, it was very much like the, the kids at the side not quite joining in, not quite comfortable. You know, these places, they're not always fun. They can be just a bit rubbish. And then you end up having to get an early bus home because you're not going to spend the night all, all night out and about and hitting the town. I love that dance scene. Because like, yeah. that dance hall is... I mean, the worst sophisticates going to nightclubs where there's waiters and champagne and all that kind of stuff in Soho and, and bands and everything. But that dance hall they go to is awful. It I just mean, looked like the, uh, the, you know, the, the local parish hall, didn't it? <laughs> and they'd even got the, uh, yeah. the lucky number calling uh, like the tombola or something. There's a scene, well, a little bit of a scene and a little bit of dialogue that makes me feel quite sad, which is when they're in the, the last pub to go to and they're looking in the window above the garage and they see a couple of girls in there. You can't really see who they are. or And he's saying, they'll be there, you know, all lovely carpets yeah. and <laughs> wallpaper on the walls. And they're lusting after this kind of, just feels like basic things, you know. Recessed lights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do get the sense that they're completely out of their depth in the West End, you know. Actually, the geography and the locations of the film are slightly at odds with each other. Because they said they live in the east end of London, this place called Wharf End, which obviously is made up anyway. But then they go over Waterloo Bridge, which you wouldn't go over to um, go to the east end. But then they, I think they're going somewhere, in, I think it's kind of Rotherhithe or Surrey Keys or something like that, isn't it? Or... No, I think they mentioned Stepney at a certain point in the court. One of the boys is from Stepney. I think. Yeah, and they, and they also, they work in Hackney, don't they? A, a garage in Hackney, which... Um, it was quite a long way from where they were headed to going south of the river. Although they weren't specific about London locations, it was all very evocative, I thought. Uh, it did conjure up a, a pretty run-down post-war London. I remember reading something about um, London being you know, severely depopulated during the Second World War, and that actually the boroughs of central London didn't actually achieve the same residential density until, until again until the late 80s. So I, I guess, you know, to be brought up in London like these four boys in the 
50s and early 60s, you know, it was probably a pretty grim sort of <laughs> barren world in which to be brought up. And, you know, certainly, you know, very little thought to uh, or indulgence of young people. It's all about, I suppose, you know, trying to get things together after the Second World War. I mean, I, w I was born in the mid-70s, and um, I can remember, actually, in, in London in the 1980s, that there were, there were still bomb sites that hadn't been redeveloped even then. What about this idea that we were talking about briefly before we started recording, which is uh, the two barristers were almost cast against type, in that you'd expect Richard Todd to be the campaigning, compassionate defence barrister, and Robert Morley to be the kind of supercilious public school snobby prosecutor and it, it, that seems slightly odd I mean I thought you know Robert Morley although he's you know he made a whole career about playing pompous upper class men you know in this film he, he did manage to make himself at the same time an insider but also an outsider and there was this wonderful little scene where he was with the four boys and he was trying to get them to help him and provide some material with which he could defend them and he said look I'm, I was always the fat boy when I was at school and so on I always had to stand at the back because if you stand at the front, you're the one who's going to get picked on. So he was just sort of showing that sort of vulnerability with them. And it did show another dimension to his personality that actually, for all that sort of pompous demeanor, there was a sensitive and very intelligent person inside. And at the end of the film, he makes a very poignant and moving mm. speech. He, he was in some ways, you know, taking the side of, of youth and boys and their vulnerability and how unjust the world can be or disproportionate the, the world can be towards towards young people. I thought it was an excellent performance, being a bit of both really, a bit of a sort of pompous ass in a way, that type, and yet obviously very humane and understanding as well. And, and I thought, uh, I think the film sort of, for me, came alive actually when he came into it, which is started doing the defence part, which is probably is a good 20 minutes or so in. I think with Richard Todd, what I think is quite interesting is you've got this sort of first part of the film, which is kind of all the testimony of the people saying, you know, these, these teenage teddy boys are a menace. All the testimony that seems to condemn the teddy boys, you know, he's guiding us through it. And he's sort of quite a reassuring Radio 4 voice with a lot of principles or seemingly a lot of principles that you think, yes, this is terrible. And, you know, these are horrible yobbos. There's a lot of in-jokes which do suggest that all these respectable figures are kind yes. of hiding something. They're not, they're not as respectable as Richard Todd is presenting them to us. You've got the, I think, really funny moment where you've got the widower who stands in court and, and is saying, you know, it was the anniversary of, of, uh, of, of with my late wife, so I was going to the cinema when I was accosted by boys. But you see that he's he's off to watch an X-rated film. He is like yeah. A, yeah, an yeah. old man with a Mac. And and so he's in, in court. He's this upstanding widower who's been wronged by hoodlums. Even the garage at the beginning where the Dudley Sutton teddy boy is kind of, oh, he's glowering through the window at these two businessmen talking. And it's only when the defence goes, well, no, he was looking at this like nudie calendar. Yeah, and, and so the respectable business people in the garage, actually they have an office that's got this, this sort of nude calendar. In it. All the respectable people are afforded a protection that the teddy boys just don't get. And I think Richard Todd, as this very respectable, principled, 
character as, as prosecutor helps give that sheen because he is the one that so we won't ask any more questions of this fine person and then you have Robert Morley as a slightly more almost like the you know the schoolboy joker he sort of will stand up and go no actually I will try something a bit risky Robert Morley says to Wilford Bramble's character do you enjoy your job or something like this something quite demeaning about his, the fact that he's a lavatory attendant and the judge says something like that's the most unbecoming question or something like that. Mm. Um, so I think you can be disgustingly snobby towards these people, but don't be blatant about it because yeah. that's not the done thing. You know, that's just not. Yeah, good actually, yeah, I mean, that's a good example where it tables turned a bit because uh, the Robert Morley character was being a bit condescending to the Wilfred Bramble character there, wasn't he? So he's not perfect, the Robert Morley character, because he sometimes he does seem a bit condescending himself. It could be just a tool yeah. in, his, in his box, couldn't it? His box of tricks can be condescending or he can be intimidating or he can be cajoling or humorous. Everything's a means to an end, isn't it? He also says some mean things to the Roy Kinnear bus conductor, doesn't he, about his mm. nervous complaint. I mean, it's really yeah. underhand to poke fun at somebody who's you know, suffering from anxiety. And also I thought the toilet attendant was proud of his, you know, living within his means as the bus, you know, they both were, um, you know, cutting their cloth according to their measure. And that was an important thing, I think, for working class culture, wasn't it, to sort of be able to pay for yourself and not, not live off the social. Did anybody else think there's any... How would they compare it to uh, 12 Angry Men? That's an all-time favourite film. And it's got, you know, to some extent, a, a similar theme. Uh, there was a, a youth who everybody was um, assuming had done it, partly because of his uh, race and his youth and so on. And then it got the one person uh, fighting on his corner and everything hinged on a knife at one point. Another film that I think was was an influence on this. It's like a Teddy Boy oh, yes. Rashomon, Rashomon, yeah, Blue when it shows yeah, the a... different. Yes, yeah. I can't believe I've not mentioned the. That's, I've got that written on my notes as well. Different perspectives, and, and and you've got the sort of running through the same scene from different angles, and how you saw it the first time isn't necessarily how it was. Or well, it often or wasn't that much different, um, and they made that point. I mean, they still did some of the more the less pleasant things. You you expected to see they didn't do it at all or whatever, but actually they did do it. Um, but you understand them a bit more so you forgive them a bit more by lying they show the sort of best versions of themselves at their their aim like rational yeah although they didn't lie that much i didn't think they it was just a slightly different emphasis it's not like anybody has different events to tell it's just slightly different views of those events which is quite rational something that i found quite interesting is also when we happen to uh, be shown the same uh, scene, one from uh, when is the, the um, prosecutor telling the story and one when is the defense telling the story. And the same scene is treated by the movie with a very different visual language. I'm thinking of the scene where the guy cleaning, displaying the knife and cleaning his, uh, his nails enter into the pub when the um, is the prosecutor telling the story he's at the at the bottom of the room with a light on it it's quite intimidating figure on the second side when the when the scene is told from the defense point of view we get into the pub with him and it's quite such a more familiar figure and the way the visual language uh, display the story is actually very powerful in uh, setting our emotional attitude toward the scene at what what's going on it'd be interesting to watch again just now i know what's going to happen when you see the scene again what was it like how was it presented the first time compare that with how it's presented the second time and it's yeah. the sort of thing that makes a film like this um, rewatchable isn't it it's is interesting to see it twice i mean could we call it the soho rashomon or is that <laughs> yeah, no, it's slightly too much 
Soho Rashomon. I like that. In the show notes for this episode, I've posted a video which shows both versions of one of the key scenes from the boys. The first from the point of view of a witness and the second from that of one of the boys. Have a look at that if you can. And you can also watch the whole film there until YouTube take it down. That is, of course, at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Thank you to Alan, Simon, Joe, Michael and Serena for taking part and bearing with me through the technical difficulties. If you think you like the sound of hanging out at the BFI chatting about films, why not track down Alan and the gang on the Meetup website and check it out? There's a link to the group in the show notes, along with all the other stuff about Sean Bradley and the Nipple Erectors, plus lots of other goodies, including the musical soundtrack of the boys by The Shadows. What's the address again? Oh yes, it's SohoBitesPodcast.com. You can, of course, tweet us with your comments and suggestions on at BitesSoho or email us at SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBytes. SohoBytes are produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young, who's having a baby quite soon. It's very exciting. See you soon, and bye for now.